0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church uh, into this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie uh, and it's my great privilege, privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And so thanks again for gathering. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, wherever you happen to be. Uh, as has been mentioned, uh, yes, uh, it's my birthday and for my gift, everyone, I got you an hour less sleep. I am, that's just a terrible thing, right? Um, so, but thank you for being here, uh, th- this morning. It's a great joy to be able to worship King Jesus together and to be able to open up his word as we continue in this series. Uh, looking at various parables of Jesus through the book of Luke. And so we've been doing this for a number of weeks. This is going to take us all the way up to Easter. And so this morning, we're going to continue, uh, and we're going to look at what is actually two very short parables um, that are told just like one right after the other. But there's a bit of setup that I'll get to that leads into this particular parable. But as we've done each week, part of the posture, I would say, that we need... We always need this, but in particular with parables, there's this, this idea, these words that Jesus uses to say, He who has ears to hear, and He who has eyes to see. And so we need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to take God's living and active word and to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Again, you don't need my take on things, my interpretation of things. We need to hear from God himself. And so as the church has done down through the centuries is to be able to pray a short prayer together, asking that we would be given ears to actually hear and eyes to see. And so I'm gonna put this short prayer up on the screen. Would you read aloud with me this prayer for illumination? Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord, amen. So with that posture, let's go into this text this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 25 to 33. And so there are Bibles in the pews this morning. I encourage you to get one of those. If you don't have a Bible or you've got one that's like in some strange translation, you can take that home with you as a gift. You can also scan the QR code that's in the pew or go to this cp.church and you can click on the little uh, tab that says Sermon Notes. Um, and you can follow along the text will be there. Uh, but really, these two parables it 's really this idea of discipleship that we 'll look at. and these two parables there 's the parable of the tower and a parable of the, the warring king that we will look at. And so as I read this, I think you 'll hear pretty quickly that there's some difficult words here. There's some jarring words, and if you're familiar at any level with the the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, if you've ever spent time reading through the accounts of his life in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know that you run across every now and again these statements that just sort of like stop you in your tracks, and you're like, wait a minute, like, what is Jesus saying here? How am I to understand that, all right? Um, there can be things that you might even look at and be like, man, I kind of wish Jesus hadn't said that. Like, that seems confusing. That doesn't seem very, like, um, culturally appropriate today. I mean, all kinds of things that might come up in today's text. As I get into it, I think you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. But let me go ahead and read this. Luke 14, we'll pick it up in verse 25 through verse 33 says this, now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, what the other, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, I'm imagining that you're picking up on like you know what were some of the like jarring words here, and we'll get into that in a moment. But first, I want to look at these opening couple of verses, to help us see there is an overall calling that Jesus is putting before the crowd that includes the disciples, all right? And it's a calling not only for the people then, but it is for us here this morning, in person, online, wherever you're listening to this, right? There's this calling, all right? And the big idea for Jesus here is it's his way of beginning to explain this idea of discipleship. Now, that's a word that gets tossed around in the church uh, quite a bit, all right? You might know the Great Commission to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like all of those things, right? And so this idea here is what is central. So keep this in mind as we go through not only the setup before the two parables, the two illustrations, But in this whole thing, like this is the overarching umbrella. This is the theme that Jesus is driving at. He's saying, I am calling people to be my disciples. I want you to know what that entails. All right, so I'm calling you to this. And we're going to look at his invitation to consider or to count the cost of that. But the big idea is discipleship. This is why C.S. Lewis once wrote in this profound way, talking about this idea of discipleship, of all the things the church can get caught up in, right? He's laying out for us, really he's following this stream of thought that Jesus lays out, like this is the thing, to be a disciple of Jesus and to make disciples. Lewis says it this way, this is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. It is easy to get muddled about that. It is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services. The church, he says, exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ or Christ-like. If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, all the clergy, the missions, the sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. The call is Jesus is drawing us, drawing people into him, to be brought into Christ, to be made like Christ, to be a disciple of his. Lewis continues then, God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. It says in the Bible that the whole universe was made for Christ and that everything is to be gathered together in him. New heavens, new earth, God gathering everything, Jesus gathering everything into himself that includes his people, to be brought into the presence of God, to be able to enjoy this deep rest. Friends, that's the invitation. And Jesus is passionate about this. Jesus wants us to know what discipleship entails. And so that's why he tells these particular parables. But before he does that, he says some really jarring things. I'll read it again, right, um, he says it this way, the crowds are there. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, I have all of those present here this morning, by the way. All right. Um, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So let's just talk about this for a minute. Like, what does Jesus mean here? And he's like, hey, gather around. It's time to start hating your family. Like, is that what he's actually saying? Like, what is he communicating here? Why does he use these words, this strong language? And so what we need to see is this is meant to be jarring. It is meant to sort of like kind of grab us by the shoulders and be like, hey, I'm calling you to pay attention to what is ultimate. Clearly, Jesus is not saying, hey, you know that whole bit about love God and love your neighbor? I changed my mind. Love God hate your neighbor, hate your wife, hate your spouse, hate hate your children, hate life. He's not saying that. Fellow image bearers, we're called to love and to serve and to care for them. Bible's filled with those instructions. So it's not so much that he's saying, all right, you're to go out and actively hate them, or Bible also tells us, love your neighbor as what? As you love yourself. Like there's an assumption built in that we would actually love ourselves. And Jesus says, all right, not only hate this list of people, but hate yourself what he's saying and what he's trying to communicate, and it was kind of the culture of the day, the Semitic sort of language that's being used, is this hyperbolic sort of statement in the way we might say, like, oh my goodness, like, you know, this pizza is better than life itself, or whatever, like, we clearly don't mean that, but we're just trying to express something that we're like, is, you know, maybe there's an intensity around it, or something we find joy in, or something that's really hard or really difficult. And what Jesus is saying, listen, If you follow me, if you're caught up in my kingdom, the love and the devotion, and all that that entails, it will be as if there's almost this hatred, not because you're called to hate the people in your life, but rather these things pale in comparison. But what we also know with the scriptures is this that one of the best ways to actually love and care for the people in that list that Jesus gives, that could be a spouse, it could be friends, brothers, sisters, relatives, neighbors, is actually to have a devotion and a love to God, to his purposes, to his kingdom first and foremost. Because when that happens, out of the overflow of the love relationship you have with God, that he has set his affection on you, when you understand that he has bound himself to you, then it allows you and it frees you up to have a proper perspective on these people that God has brought into your life. And so Jesus isn't saying hate them, but he's actually saying, hey, you actually, you want to love them well? Be my disciple. Have a sincere devotion to me and to my ways and to my kingdom. And in that place then, all of these other relationships will take their proper perspective in order. So he's not saying hate, but he is saying, do these things, do they have priority or does following me, being my disciple, have priority in your life. To the extent that I actually am following Jesus, loving Jesus, finding my identity in Jesus, resting in the finished work of Jesus, I am a better husband, a better father, a better son, a better friend. Like All of those things are directly tied to where our ultimate allegiance is. And then Jesus says this in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we read those words and as the church, a couple thousand years on the other side of the cross and resurrection, we can hear that language again of bear our cross or carry our cross, take up our cross and follow after Jesus. And a lot can be lost, but just try and put yourself back in that time and in that place you would not be sitting around a dinner table and ever mention the cross. It was so shameful, so horrific, so despicable. And it was not a proper thing to talk about. Even for the people that probably were like, eh, whatever about proper, I like to push the envelope. Like even for those folks, right? And I would include myself in that, all right? Would be like, yeah, but we don't talk about that. Like we don't, we don't go there. And we can lose sight of that because here, some 2,000 years later, like we have crosses up in our, our churches and we have jewelry that is in the shape of a cross. Like we have those things. But what Jesus is getting at, he's saying, hey, you want to be my disciple? There's a call to take up your cross. There's a call to put to death the self, like what we ultimately desire in order to gladly surrender to him. D.A. Carson, the theologian in his book a number of years ago called Scandalous, I've always loved this quote, not because it's easy to digest, but because in many ways it is like the teachings of Jesus, like it's this jarring sort of thing. He's calling us to consider all that this means. So when Jesus says the cross, hear these words from D.A. Carson, this expression to bear, to take up one's cross, is not an idiom by which to refer to some trivial annoyance an ingrown toenail, perhaps, or a toothache, or an awkward in-law. Oh, we all have our crosses to bear. No, in the first century, that sort of interpretation would have been impossible. In the first century, it was as culturally unthinkable to make jokes about crucifixion as it would be today to make jokes about Auschwitz. I mean, that's the level here. And Carson continues, he says, to take up your cross does not mean to move forward with courage despite the fact that you've lost your job or your spouse, as difficult as those things are. It means you are under sentence of death. You are taking up the horizontal cross member on your way to the place of crucifixion. You have abandoned all hope of life in this world. And then Jesus says, and only then are we ready to follow him. So that's the language it's getting at. Like, picture a group of people who have the horizontal beam of the cross on their shoulders, traveling outside of the city as people mock you, spit upon you, only to be hoisted up with nails put in your hands, in your feet, onto the vertical piece and there be crucified. Like, it's that's, that's the imagery here. Like, we would be seen as people that are taking up our cross, that there is this surrender. And so, Somehow, Jesus is saying, hey, you want to be a follower of me? This is a bit of what it actually entails. because he said, whoever does not bear his cross cannot and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, that word may be helpful just to unpack it for a moment. The Hebrew word for disciple, all right, is this word talmudim, all right? And it means that you are a student, a pupil, a learner, all right? Um, And yet, even that doesn't quite get at the heart of the matter, because when we think about that, we tend to think about, all right, a dissemination of information. There's somebody who's studied a certain amount. They maybe have certain, you know, like, uh, degrees that they've achieved or whatever. And so they are the ones that communicate, and we are there to receive the information. And it's not altogether bad. It's not wrong. There's levels of that that are happening this morning, right? This is not really a dialogue. There's this monologue that's taking place, right? So that notion, though, in kind of our modern Western sensibilities, that's not exactly it. There was information that would be communicated. But to truly learn something, to truly know something, all right, to be a Talmudim would be that you would follow a particular rabbi, And you would seek to become exactly like that rabbi in all way, shape, and form of that person's life. Like the things that they did, their habits, their practices, when they get up, that's when you would get up, all right? When they go to bed, that's when you'd go to bed. Like you would literally, I mean, it's gross and kind of funny at the same time. Like they literally would follow, like disciples, Talmudim would follow their rabbis into the bathroom. Like we wanna know how this man does his thing, right? Like there was like this level of devotion, and when this word gets used then, Jesus is saying, you wanna be my disciple? all right?" He's the new rabbi that's shown up on the scene and he is calling his disciples and he's inviting us to be part of this. But it's not just so we can listen to lectures and just sort of download a bunch of information. If we think that that model works, we should be able to look out right now and say, all right, we are in this information age. We have access to more content, than is even imaginable, right? Think about how many podcasts are out there, the number of things you can go and watch. I mean, the endless like lectures. You wanna learn how to do something, you just put it on YouTube and you can figure it out. And those are beautiful gifts. But would we say that of all the information now that's been produced, all the content that our world reflects the way of Jesus, people now Completely love God. They love their neighbor. There's no animosity. There's no division. There's no strife. There's this perfect harmony. I mean, we have ushered in, all right, the new heavens and the new earth on our own with all of our information. Well, no, of course we wouldn't. Because it's more than just information. There's this this invitation, really, in this of like following Jesus. And friends, don't miss this, though, because this can sound very heavy and like, okay, well, it's up to us and we got to do this. The rock stars, the heroes of the culture were the rabbis. I know that seems confusing, all right? Um, but you think about how we think about sports stars, all right? We think about celebrities. We think about people that are famous YouTubers or on TikTok or whatever it happens to be. Like, whatever your thing is, like, we get into that. We follow certain people, all right? And they're revered. The thing in the culture at that time, the time of Jesus would be like if you were a parent, right, you'd be, as a man, you'd be like out there, you'd be working your particular job, probably a family business. So if if your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. If your dad was a fisherman, you're a fisherman. And so was your grandpa and your great grandpa. And it would just on the line, down the line, it would go. But there was always this hope that maybe God would give a child that would be bright enough, impressive enough, have all that it would take to actually be a disciple of a particular rabbi. I mean, that's actually how things were revered in that culture. And only the best of the best got to actually be a disciple. And if you didn't have what it took, you would just go and be about your father's business, which is what? Which is where we find like Peter and James and John, what are they doing, right? Cast your, like, leave your nets and come follow me. They're just doing their job that their dad did and their grandpa did and on and on and on. What Jesus has come on the scene now and said, listen, it's not about the best and the best. It's about the overlooked, the marginalized, the people that don't have it all together, that aren't that impressive. I'm inviting you to come be my disciple. All right, So it's God's grace through and through. It's not this pressure, like, you're going to be a disciple, you better get your stuff together and be impressive. It's like, no. Jesus does it in a whole new way. He subverts the whole thing and he says, I'm gonna call the overlooked. I'm gonna call the marginalized. I'm gonna call the people who have failed and flunked out and don't have actually what it takes by the world standards. And I'm gonna start a movement that will transform the world. So that's what's going on here when he speaks of this. Dallas Willard, his book, The Divine Conspiracy, gets at this notion about how we think about learning. He says, in our day, Learners usually think of themselves as containers of some sort, with a purely passive space to be filled by the information the teacher possesses and wishes to transfer, referred to as the from jug to mug model, right? The teacher is to fill in empty parts of the receptacle with truth that may or may not later make some difference to the life of the one who has it. The teacher must get the information into them. We then, quote, test the patients, or the pupils, to see if they got it by checking whether they can reproduce it in language rather than watching how they live. There's nothing bad with being able to reproduce the language, but let's admit it's possible to say all the discipleship things, to say the right bits of theology, to have those things, those boxes checked, and not actually be obedient to the ways of Jesus a disciple, someone who knows the ways of Jesus, and the way that you know that you know it is that it's actually being lived out and applied. And so what Jesus does now is he says, all right, there's the calling. Now I'm gonna invite you to count the cost because he's already laid out for us. This is a difficult thing. Take up your cross, bear your cross. Now look with me at verses 28 to 32. Jesus uses two back-to-back short parables. We'll look at the first one, All right, and he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. So we look more closely at this. Just remember, this is not the first time that Luke has recorded for us that there's a large crowd that's gathered. This is not being stated to a small group of disciples, it's to the crowd. And we see this movement, keep this in mind, there's this movement of Jesus that he's going from the crowd and he's trying to get to a core of people. It's not that Jesus is anti-big crowds, all right? He's just not enamored with them like we are. He doesn't come on the scene and get his identity and get all filled up like, oh, look at all these people that came out to see me. Wait till I do the thing with the fish and the bread. They're gonna lose their minds, right? Like, that's not how he's operating, Jesus, like I'm looking for a group of disciples, a group of Talmudim, people that know enough to know they don't have it all figured out, but they're willing to follow me, that they're caught up in this kingdom movement. And sure, God cares about the crowd because he cares about image bearers, and image bearers make up a crowd, but Jesus Seems to be bent every time there's a crowd of trying to like create some space to open up some seats to kind of like you know uh, dwindle that crowd a bit. Not because he doesn't care, but because he's saying, Listen, you might just be out here because you just got fed or because I did this, you know, some miracle or that's just what people are doing. Like, we all just love to be caught up in something. And Jesus is like, I want to invite you to count the cost. There's this movement from a crowd to a core. So we talk. Let's talk about building a tower. And so Jesus very practically says, hey, if you're going to do this, you would count the cost. You would sit down and say, do I have enough resources? Can I actually finish this? And so I was thinking about this week, right? And I was like, "Do how would I illustrate this? And then as I happened to be driving to a meeting this week, I said, oh, in God's grace and kindness, he has given us this, all right? Now, you, most of you laugh because you know what this is, right? Like it's come to be known as the the eyesore on I-4, all right? Um uh, and it's literally playing out the exact same way that, that Jesus talked about it here, right? This construction began for this, I think in uh, 2001, so we're over 20 years now. To my knowledge, it's not yet finished, all right? And it's this ongoing project. And the jokes come, right? Every time there's a hurricane, it's like, Lord, take it out, you know, um, like those sort of things. But Jesus said, hey, if you don't count the cost. If you don't actually know what it's going to take to finish it, it will actually lead to people mocking, And because the internet is terrible in some ways, but awesome in some other ways, right? I began going down kind of this rabbit hole of like looking at various Google image search results for the eyesore on i4. And just to see this play out, all right, I thought I'd put a few of these, uh, before you. All right. And so, um, you know, the mockery starts when the spirit of Halloween image shows up. Um, any abandoned building, right? They show up there and here it is. Um, I thought this one was rather interesting. You know, Florida during the Cretaceous period. All right. Uh, you got it there with the dinosaurs just hanging out. What was perhaps the biggest surprise? And I thought this one was amazing. So if you are looking for any last minute birthday gift ideas, um, I might actually like this t-shirt um, procrastination level. And then you just measure it according to that building. Now, all of those things are funny and they're humorous. And I, again, the, the internet's amazing in many ways. But if we're honest and we stop and sort of grapple with what Jesus is saying, he's like, man, it's possible to have that initial hype, the initial surge, but not actually count the cost. And Jesus loves the crowd too much to invite them into some sort of easy believism that would just say, hey, just just show up every now and again, just give a little lip service. Like, that's all I'm really looking for. No, no. He's saying, are you going to be my disciple? And similarly, these are really making the same point, just two different illustrations, likely connecting with different people in, in the crowd in, in different ways, but making the same point. So we'll look at this quickly as well. Verse 31, it says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he determines if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. And this is what a wise king would do. Do I have the resources? Can I actually see this through? What will this actually cost me? Jesus is not interested in the emotional fervor and kind of like whipping the room up into a frenzy and hoping of getting a a quick decision about something. He's saying, I'm I'm giving you the information. Like, I'm not sugarcoating anything. It's not a bait and switch. I'm literally telling you, hey, cross, that's your life. Now, there is joy that's found there in some very upside-down counterintuitive ways, but he's saying, have you considered, have you counted the cost? And so as we think about this in our, in our moment, I just want to take a few minutes here to share with something. I, I link this in the, the sermon notes. And you can go watch this in its entirety. This is not original to me. This is something I found helpful over the past few weeks. It's something I listened to probably five or six weeks ago, I think, or maybe a month ago. Um, it was like, hey, I know I was going to be in this particular text talking about the cost of discipleship. And there was just some insights into it by a guy out of Australia named Mark Sayers. I've mentioned and quoted his books numerous times. This is a particular podcast episode. And so again, you can go in the sermon notes notes uh it hurt my feelings if you watched it right now while i'm talking so if you can wait till after but um go check that out um at, at some point point. and he talked about and i think this would be helpful is it all right if we're going to count the cost can we talk a moment about like what's the context like what's our cultural context where we're seeking to just be a disciple and then to make disciples it's not the be-all, end-all, but I think it gets to some of what the pain points are, some of where the difficulty will be. Um, he's a, a guy that uses um, big words that I have to look up. Um, and so i have I've hopefully trying to represent uh, his teaching here well. But I thought these were helpful things. And it was around three areas of atomization, seduction, and exhaustion. Let me just talk about this for a moment. And anything that seems confusing, you can go listen to the podcast uh, later. But the first is this. In the world that we inhabit, everything is about, it's this atomization, everything is about the individual, all right? And one of the insights, one of the things that's difficult about being a disciple right now, one of the particular challenges is we often live in this just realm of possibilities. Meaning, ooh, I could do that. Or I could go there, or I could do this. I mean, it's affecting things at a level, even just our culture, like the loneliness and the isolation we feel, all right? Like there was a gentleman years ago who wrote a book, his name's Robert Putnam, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, um, which used to be that people go bowl in groups and increasingly, like culturally, there are people that are just showing up to go bowl alone. It speaks to like the, the fabric of society and the ways we used to be kind of webbed together. And this is outside of the church, this is just like, neighborliness and those sort of things, like a lot of that has gone away. It didn't help that there was a global pandemic, right? But it kind of revealed even just where we were culturally. This continued, like this atomization, it's just about me. It's about my way, my preferences. And one of the great challenges is this choosing could over community, meaning this, when we live in this perpetual, like, oh, I could go do that, or I could do that, um, we are past the point of, you've heard of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Um, that's not even the, the latest thing a- anymore, all right? It's FOBO, it's fear of better offers. So it's not, oh, I gotta sign up for this thing because I don't wanna miss out on it. It's like, let me keep all the options open because there might be something better that comes along. And this is having an effect Certainly just culturally, but also obviously in the church. Well, what if there's something better that comes along on this night where I'm maybe committed to be part of, take a group or a study, right? That doesn't mean you can ever miss it. All right, like we missed our community group recently. It's not like shame on us, right? But my point is this, like increasingly this is playing out and we're trying to be disciples and yet there's this realm of could, And because the coulds are so compelling at times, all right, and we're fearful of there being a better offer, something that, well, I don't know if I want to commit to this. I don't know if I can sign up for that because, well, that might, in the last moment, there might be something better. We begin operating more and more as these atomized people. It leads to more loneliness, leads to more isolation. So we choose could, and we talk, and we give lip service to community, but are we willing to make the sacrifices for community to actually happen? You and I cannot live in a perpetual could if we actually desire community. Closely related to this, Sayers goes on and says, there's this seduction. He says, he uses the language, of seduction at scale. And what he means is that there are literally, like the, the approach from all marketing and advertising and the corporations, it is to get you and I to live in a world where no one ever says no to us. And what we what ends up happening, and you can see where this is closely related to this atomization in the realm of could, is that everything screams out, yes, you can do this. Yes, you can do this. No one ever tells us no. Everything we're bombarded with is like more options. Yes, you can do this. Yes, you can have what your heart desires. Follow your heart. And we get seduced. We get seduced into being people that no longer are devoted to Jesus. We may still show up for a few things when there's no better offers. But at the end of the day, we're seduced into taking the good things that the Lord has given us and elevating those things. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James K. Smith, a philosopher at Calvin College, said it this way, it is not primarily our minds that are captivated, but rather our imaginations. This is what happens in this like culture of seduction. And when our imagination is hooked, we're hooked. This is just to say that to be human is to desire the kingdom some version of the kingdom, like that's driving all of us, which is the aim of our quest. Every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hope for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life, the realm of human flourishing that we pursue without ceasing. Implicitly and tacitly As such visions of the kingdom that pull us to get up in the morning and suit up for the quest. I mean, everybody is living for the kingdom. It just usually is our own kingdom, not the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of of heaven. And so you have this atomization. You have this seduction that begins to take place. What I found, though, perhaps most compelling is just a recognition of where this leads. Because it's this realm where we're highly driven, we're on the go constantly, and it's, it just leads to exhaustion. In this language, I'd never thought about it this way, but he was framing it as everybody at some level is an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur of the self. And we're constantly, this relates to the seduction. We are bombarded with messages that says, you got to maximize it. It's got to be the epic, most ultimate vacation or concert or night out with, with, with friends, like everything has to be amazing. Everything has to be next level, right? And we're out there showcasing things functionally. What we're doing is we're, we're building a brand of self and it is causing our souls to just shrivel up and to die. And if you're like, well, I don't use social media, so that doesn't apply to me, that's just not true. Like, it applies to all of us. We may not necessarily broadcast that all in the same ways, but that sort of, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, a focus on self, there's this intensity around our work, and we're called to work and do our work unto the Lord, but there is this exhaustion that takes place. And friends, when we talk about this and these parables and counting the cost, I think Jesus is inviting us to consider, hey, this is some of what we're up against because everybody's a disciple. You're either a disciple of the ways or the culture of the world or you're a disciple of Jesus and of the way of Jesus. So let's look at the last verse in this. As Jesus invites us, implores us to count the cost, I believe there's a question for all of us then, like will you and I commit to being disciples, to being and following the way of Jesus. Verse 33, he says it this way as again, a summary point. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Let me read it one more time. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Friends, when I read that, and I think about these words and trying to give some consideration to it, and to actually count the cost, what can be a bit terrifying, and maybe you feel this tension, is like, I have not renounced everything. There are still things in my life that are good things that I give more devotion, more attention to. I'm not following the way of Jesus I can listen to podcast and I can be inspired by something even, ooh, I should bring that into a teaching several weeks from now, all of that, and yet not have it grip my heart in a way that it leads to this transformation. I can still stay in the realm of like, well, fill me up with more knowledge. This is what I like. We'll just do that and then I'll disseminate the information. And the reality is I have actually not renounced everything, that there are still things that grip my heart that promise make promises, or I believe they're making promises, this will satisfy, this will actually deliver. So what do we do with that? Because we can end here and be like, well, I guess it's up to us to be good disciples. We've got to prove that we're worthy. We've got to prove that we're this good, like the Talmudim, these good followers of Jesus. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, the only way, you're actually gonna be able to be my disciple is when you rest in, when you realize all that he renounced in order to get you and I back. When he looked out of the course of like human history, even before time began, knowing your story and my story, that God put a plan in motion where his son would enter into this world, where his son would literally renounce everything, all the things that were rightfully his. He would leave that so he could come live on this earth, live a sinless life, do all of these things, and eventually, not just hypothetically or figuratively take up his cross, actually go to a cross, actually carry the horizontal beam, actually be drug and led outside the city as people mocked and spit upon him with his, the flesh ripped off of his back, actually have nails put through his hands and his feet hoisted up on a hill outside of the city. Like, that actually did happen. He's literally renounced everything. He would deal with being forsaken by his father so that you and I could be brought in. We could be invited into the adventure that is being a disciple of Jesus. And even in those places where we don't have wholehearted devotion, where we don't actually renounce everything, there is grace upon grace for that. And the more we understand that grace, the more we actually grow as disciples. We see the seduction that, at scale that's happening. We are honest with the exhaustion that we feel. All right, We come to a point of this recognition of like, oh, fear of better offer. And we realize there's no better offer ever than the gospel. Like, that's where we find life. And so the writer of Hebrews picking up on these themes in Hebrews 12 says it this way, it's on the heels of laying out this kind of history, not of people who were perfect, but people who had this devotion to Jesus, who knew that they were brought in, not because they were awesome or impressive, but because they were recipients of God's grace. There was no better offer. And it compelled them, many of them to actually give their lives to the cause of Christ, not because they had to earn anything, because they knew to live, all right, is, that's great, but to die is gain. And so Hebrews 12 picks up on this, As therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside then, let's renounce every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? not looking at self, not trying to figure out a plan or a strategy, but looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He didn't just, he's not just the founder and that's up to you to perfect it and work it out. He's the founder, he's the perfecter, he's the active agent who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising all the shame that it entailed and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. friends, the renouncing, I mean, how beautiful is this? He's like, I will give up everything for the joy. It's not, it's not even like, a, it's not that he was happy about the, the pain and the separation from God, but, but big picture when he, when he looked out and the reason he could pray in the garden, Lord, if there's any way that this cup can pass, but not my will, but your will be done, is because of the joy of getting you back and bringing you in to be a disciple. Like that's what it was all about. That's what allowed him to actually endure for the joy that was set before him. He endured all that the cross entailed, the physical excruciating pain, the emotional, but the spiritual, the being separated from his heavenly father, the communion that he's known to actually in that moment be completely just ostracized and feeling that loss so that we could be brought in. And so as we close be encouraged in this, this same Jesus then is inviting us. He's the good rabbi, he's inviting us in. It's why Jesus would say in Matthew 11, come to me, all who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Another aspect that we sometimes miss is that in that time, in that place, a rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures, their understanding of the scriptures, their application of the scriptures was referred to as their yoke. And you, if you thought you had what it would take, would go and disciple or apprentice under a rabbi and say, I'm gonna take that yoke upon me. And that yoke was oppressive. It was about keeping certain number of rules and regulations, do this, don't do this. And then the new rabbi, the ultimate one, Jesus shows up, he says, my yoke's not like that. My yoke is easy, my burden is light because I have paid for it all. I have borne the the burden of your sin and your shame. Why don't you come and rest? That's the invitation this morning. And the more we understand the rest we have in Christ who frees us from the exhaustion, that there are no better offers out there, the more we can actually grow as disciples who make disciples. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace toward us. In Christ Jesus, Jesus, would you, through the power of your spirit, be forming us into a people that know how desperately we need your grace and your mercy, and thank you that it never runs out. And so thank you that you have provided for us the greatest offer ever. May we find life there. May we not be seduced by all the competing visions of the good life. So the Holy Spirit, lead us in repentance in the ways that we have bought into those lives. Remind us of the good news of the gospel that we get to celebrate together. And from that place, Lord, would you make us a people that are committed to being disciples who make disciples so that more people might know the joy, might know the easy yoke, the light burden of being a follower of Jesus. And so God, continue to be honored and glorified as we worship you now through song. Would you just give us a great joy and delight in worshiping you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.